We'll finish up our look at Galatians uh, this, this evening. Tomorrow morning for Christmas Day, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 42, uh, one of the, the five what we call the servant songs of Isaiah. It's talking about this servant who's going to come. Sometimes he's seen as a suffering servant later in the, in the book of Isaiah. In this, in this one, he's the servant in whom we are to delight. It's the, we're going to talk about delighting in God tomorrow morning. It's Psalm 42, verses 1 through 9 is where we'll spend our time uh, tomorrow. But tonight, uh, we're looking again at Galatians 4 as we have these last uh, two sermons. We focused back on the 11th on when the fullness of time had come. And we said that was more of a redemptive historical time. There was something about the time that God the Father said, now it's time for the Son to, to come forth into the world, to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And so last Sunday we looked at this, this twofold purpose of Christ's coming. There's, there's more we could say about his purpose, but as, as the way that Paul speaks of it here, he came to redeem and he came to adopt. And so last Sunday we looked at redemption, Christ dying for us, purchasing us back. And now this evening we're looking at adoption. It wasn't just we were saved from something, that we talked about last Sunday, we're saved unto something, and perhaps the greatest of that blessing, we're saved into a new family. We have new abilities, we have new responsibilities even. J.I. Packer says of adoption, it's the highest privilege that the gospel offers. That's not necessarily the greatest thing that was done, but in terms of our experience of the gospel in this life, adoption is its highest privilege. I want to unpack that as we go along uh, tonight. Let me read first Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. We ask that you would write its eternal truths upon our heart. Lord, that we would not just hear, but we would also believe. And we would follow you all of our days and we would do it with joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know, one of the blessings here at Westminster, and there are many, but one of them is, is we have a lot of families here at Westminster who've adopted children. And that is a tremendous blessing. It's a tremendous blessing to not only be able to know of this theological idea of adoption, but also see it in its real-world illustration through adoption. My wife, Lauren, and I, we have some very dear friends. Likely you have, perhaps if you haven't been through adoption yourself, you know people well who have. Lauren and I have some dear friends from Macon, Georgia. They have adopted four children. We had the great opportunity of walking through that process with three of those kids. Three of them came from truly unspeakable backgrounds. We got to cry with them and pray with them as they had court date after court date, wondering, is this ever going to become official and final? And in each of those cases, it did. And it's wonderful to see now their family continue to grow, and we love them as friends, and we were glad that we got to go through that process with them. What happens when a child is adopted? Well, in 
human adoption versus spiritual adoption. It's namely you have a new family, you get a new last name, you go to a new home, right? You have, you're now a part of a family and you're caught up in all their traditions and the way they do things. Spiritual adoption is all of that and more. This is not just a new family that we get in this, what we call this theological idea of adoption, though you do. You now have a father, a heavenly father. You have a spiritual savior and literal savior, an older brother, Jesus Christ. You now have the Holy Spirit who convinces you of this new family and this new intimacy that you have with God that you did not previously have. Adoption teaches us much about what we are now as saved people in Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son to make you and I sons and daughters of God. To redeem us, yes, but then to put us into a new family. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is adoption? And then it answers, adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Adoption is the basis of so much of what we are as Christians and what we believe. Christ is our Father, as I mentioned before. Excuse me, the Father, God, is our Father. Christ is our older brother. The Holy Spirit indwells us, confirming these realities. Yes, we may not all know each other in here, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't we? We have a new relationship with one another. You are my brothers and sisters. Some of you are my fathers and mothers in the faith. And we are to love each other as such. We may, we may come from completely different backgrounds. We may have, have a different race, different socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter. We are part now of the family of God. J.I. Packer again says of adoption, it's the basis of the Christian life because it affects everything. The Bible only speaks of adoption directly in three places. Our passage, Galatians 4, Romans 8, and then Ephesians chapter 1. Yet the concept is in many places. And what it always shows us is what J.I. Packer calls adoption through propitiation. Another great theological term. Christ propitiated. He satisfied or quenched the wrath of God. And because of that, we were able to be sons and daughters. He redeemed us, therefore, we could be justified by our faith, and now we have special privileges because we are in his family. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, and the first thing he mentions, we are his children. So, two points after a long introduction, because of our adoption, number one, we are family. God sent his son so that we would be family. Family with him and family with one another. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir, an heir to riches and a great inheritance, all that Christ has accomplished for you. If you remember back on the first Sunday of this month, we looked at the very end of chapter three of Galatians. We're no longer in bondage. We are free. And since we are free, that's not the only benefit. You now have a unique relationship with God that you did not formerly have, nor could you, because there was a problem. The problem was sin. That was removed. 
Now he loves you tenderly just as you love your kids and grandkids tenderly. God was eager to do this. Out of all the families on the earth, he wanted to make one huge family that he calls now his church and his people. You remember the great line from Martin Luther that I quote so often to you, the love of God did not find, but created that which was pleasing to it. He did not find lovable people that he would want to adopt in and of themselves. No, he created those that were lovable and in his family, serving his purposes for his glory. He chose to adopt sinful creatures like you and me. And the Father sent his Son in the fullness of time to die on a cross for us. And what a great privilege it is to be adopted. Because again, it's not just a change from one family to another. I now have all these new abilities to love him and follow him that I did not formerly have. I have an inheritance in heaven that's waiting for me because of Christ. It's not just that I was forgiven of my sin. Of course, that's a wonderful blessing. Look at, I, look at all of you. Look at what we have. Look at, we can bear one another's burdens and love each other well. We can care for each other. And we have an eternal home waiting for us. How does this happen? God sent his son. How do we get caught up in that in this life? The Holy Spirit indwelling us and reminding us of this. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. You are not a slave anymore. You're not an outsider. You're not strange to this kingdom. You are now welcomed. He loves you. He wants you here. Yes, we continue to sin. We continue to doubt. We continue to have moments of self-righteousness. Yes, we continue to stray. But in God the Father's eyes, we are children. We are sons and daughters. That's simply what you are. It's a state of being at this point. Sinclair Ferguson says, of all the biblical pictures of what it means to be a Christian, this one is as crucial for our times as it is central to the Christian gospel. Adoption is crucial for our times, he says, and I think he's right. As much as we talk in our culture today about identity, where is my identity going to be found? Is my identity going to be in my sexuality? Is my identity going to be in my political party? Is my identity going to be in what I do for a living? No, your identity is this, Westminster. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. You are loved. You're cared for by your Heavenly Father. He is, he is all that you need. He is your all in all. He's not a portion of your life. He is your life. You don't need him on the side whenever it's convenient. You need him to permeate all of who you are. And indeed, he offers to be just that. That is a cure for us in, in one sense. It's the identity question. It's the how now am I supposed to live? I'm supposed to live as my heavenly father has told me. Well, where has he told me? He's told me in his word. Adoption means that God has graciously taken us for his children. He regenerates us. He pardons us through justification. He gives us a new family in adoption. And he begins to transform us by sending us his Holy Spirit who is renovating your heart as if he was renovating a new home he had just purchased. 
And once adopted, that child now fully belongs to the family. It's not that you're going to get later in life and say, oh, we forgot to mention some things in the fine print. There's a few more things you've got to do to accomplish this adoption. No, there is not. Why did he do it? Well, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the father who loves. I don't know how many of you are familiar with John G. Patton. He was a Scottish Presbyterian missionary. If you have an opportunity to get your hands on his biography, I strongly encourage you to do that. It's an excellent story. Uh, There's lots of twists and turns in his life. Soon after he went on to the mission field in the New Hebrides down in the South Pacific, just sort of to the northeast of, of Australia, that's where he did most of his time as a missionary. His wife would die in labor with their first child. The story that is the most touching, and there are many, but I think the most touching is the story of when he and his father were saying goodbye to each other. You see, if you were a missionary in the mid-19th century, you didn't have a phone where you could text and you couldn't check in with email and you weren't going to come home for a six-month furlough. I don't say that to be critical of modern missionaries. I just It's the reality of being a missionary in the mid-19th century. Very likely, you were saying goodbye to your family forever, and you would never see them again. I'm now quoting John Patton. For the last half mile or so, my father and I walked together with almost unbroken silence. My father's tears fell fast when our eyes met each other with looks for which all speech was vain. We halted upon reaching the appointed parting place, and he grasped my hand firmly for a minute, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. May God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer, and in tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could, and I went around a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back, and I saw him still standing, gazing after me. I waved my hat at him, and I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant. My heart was so full, I I went off on the side of the road, and and I began to weep. Then rising cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he stood where I left him, and just that moment, I caught a glimpse of him, climbing the dike and looking out for me as well. And after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down and set his face toward home and began to return. I watched him through blinding tears his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father. It's hard to read that and not get choked up. I realize that that's a beautiful story of a son and his father. That may not be the story you have with your own earthly father. It may be, You may have a sweet and tender relationship with your earthly father, and you may not have a sweet and tender relationship with your earthly father, but this is the type of heavenly father that you have. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you without condition. He loves you because of what his son that he sent forth has done for you, or if you aren't a Christian here this evening, what he offers to do for you. And to love you in such a way. It's a close relationship. And he knows the baggage that you bring. He knows the limitations. And he knows the doubts. And he knows the sin. 
He still loves you and is committed to transforming you into his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. We're family. He is your father. Christ is your older brother. We are brothers and sisters. Let us live that way and in that joy. Secondly, we are free. We have a new family. Now we have a new behavior and ability to act and believe and follow in ways that we did not formerly have. How can we do that? We are led by God's Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He allows us to do this. And we must never forget that we are free. Unfortunately, the word free and freedom has been completely mischaracterized in our culture today, hasn't it? Our culture speaks of freedom, and it assumes freedom means I must be able to do whatever I want, and no one can tell me what I can and cannot do. Well, that isn't freedom. In fact, that's bondage, quite frankly. You're in bondage to yourself and to your desires, and you you break relationships. No, 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 you can't tell me what to do. The freedom that we have in Jesus Christ is free to live in the way we were created to live and be how we were created to be. To follow and love this heavenly father just as we were meant to do. It's a new access, it's a new status, and it's new freedom. And what is the principal blessing that Paul says that those who have been adopted into God's family, what is the principal blessing? It's the ability to say, Abba, Father. It's prayer. It's not the only blessing, not the only one. But we might call it the principal or highest or greatest blessing. It's the encouragement by the writer of Hebrews to come boldly to the throne of grace. Not irreverently, but boldly. Abba, Father. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. How does he begin? Our Father who art in heaven. When he's crying out from the cross, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's intimate family language there. When we are in trials and struggles and suffering of every kind, you can say, Lord, help me. And when you do, that's the spirit in your heart bearing testimony that you are his child. Help me, Lord, be with me. Or Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for this provision in my life. When we pray to him, we are proving our adoption. There's an interesting exchange in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is hiding in a cave. Queen Jezebel is trying to take his life because he's just killed all these prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And Elijah's dejected. He's just had this huge victory, but now he's dejected because Queen Jezebel's after him. And God calls out to Elijah in the cave, Elijah, why are you here? Of course, God, God knows. He's not looking for information. He knows all things. But it's, it's almost as if he's asking, Elijah, talk to me. What, what, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And Elijah kind of gets it out once, and then God continues to talk to him, and then he basically says all the same things again, like, Elijah, get it out. Vomit it out of your mouth. It's fine. Just talk to me. I am your father. I am your God. Let, what's going on? What's wrong? I think sometimes we need that encouragement as God's children, as if he's sort of prompting us, talk to me, what's going on? 
tell me your struggles. Of course he knows them. But he wants you to tell him. He wants you to talk it out with him. A Christian prayer, it's, it's what we are. It's the language we speak. Or as one commentator said, a Christian that doesn't pray is like a baby that doesn't cry or a bird that doesn't sing. It, it simply can't be. We must do this. It's such a blessing for our life. And when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, it's, it's just what we naturally do. Abba, Father, help me. Thank you. It's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that reminds us that we are children. You know, isn't it funny that perhaps this, this has happened to me in the narthex before. You're standing there visiting with people and, and a, little ch- a little two or three year old comes running up and they'll like give you a big hug around your leg and you look down and it's not your child, right? But they think you're mom or dad and they look up at you and they're horrified at what they've done and they scurry off looking for their actual mommy and daddy. You know, they have no reason to be upset, of course, but they're just a little shocked at what they have done. Why? Because they're not comforted in your presence. They're only comforted by their own mother or father. They go looking for mommy or daddy. That's the one that picks me up. That's the one that changes my diaper. That's the one that makes sure I'm going to have something for lunch today. That's the one that really loves me. That's how we ought to be unto our heavenly father eagerly running to the throne of grace, knowing that we will find help in time of need. But I wonder sometimes if we don't look at God the Father that way, that we think of him as the prodigal son was concerned the father might be when he returned home, just hoping maybe I can be a hired servant in the house. Maybe there'll be a place on me, for me on the periphery. And the father says, absolutely not. We're killing the fatted calf. Just come on in. Let me give you the robe and the ring and, and all, the, all the very best. Why? Because the son had returned. It's what we are. We are his sons and daughters that he loves and cares for and provides for. And that is what the father did. He lavished the son as he returned. And there was the older brother grumbling. Because the older brother thought that obedience unto the father was bondage and slavery when it indeed is not. It is freedom. And once we see it at that, we begin to understand what it is to be a child of God. Our obedience is not bondage. Our obedience is God, thank you. Thank you for loving me and caring for me. Help me to continue on by your spirit and in your grace. 